17. We're going to pick it up where we somewhat left off, okay? Because I know that um, I did a lot of parking last time. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 6 of 17, okay? So verse 6 of chapter 17, let's just take a look and see what Proverbs has for us. Then again, mindful of the fact that in each component part, there is a word of wisdom. There is something that we are to consider and perhaps even to ponder more deeply. Proverbs is both an intriguing book and it's also mysterious. The manner by which Solomon was able to, one, inventory what God gave him eyes to see and a heart that was able to discernibly pen it for us kind of i think it's it's like for us when we study the old documents of the governing forefathers of our constitution our government when you note the writing style the calligraphy and their penmanship when you compare it to what you know even somebody like me as a professional teacher used to painstakingly teach fourth graders you know Danilian was, I think, ultimately the, the compromise between a print and somewhat of an artistic um, cursive. And then it went where nobody cared anymore. It's just print. Whatever it is, just get your work done, kids. Um, and I was kind of grieved on that one. I think that right now handwriting is not even a requirement. The reason that I said that is that it can be something like that. And I, I think that possibly it could be indicative of the fact that we don't strive to understand difficult things anymore. And we don't strive necessarily for excellence. I think penmanship should have continued to be required and of excellence. And that's my personal feelings on it. And I don't know what superintendent made that decision that it was irrelevant, but there you go. In this verse six, it says that for the elderly man, Children's children are the crown of old men. And so that's important because a lot of times what men think about is it's the vocation of what it is we're known for, that that's our crown, or our wife is our crown. It's not saying at all that those things aren't important. They're identification markers. Whatever it is we do has with it an impression that should point to God in both what we did and how we did it and how we were remembered for it. It's a legacy. But in this, which is important to saying that the genealogy of a man by whom his children bear is no less a significant thing to be able to boast in. We can go through, for instance, analytically on, well, what are they going to turn out to be? They're too young for me to actually know. Well, that's because God isn't imposing that on you. That's the parent's responsibility who bear these children, their grandkids. And so what it is is that God gives us an opportunity to indulge and not be the parent, but actually be a step higher in terms of the experience that we have and to celebrate what we are able to import from the word and be able to transport into their heart and mind um, 
very impressed with what ultimately are the grandparents of my kids. My parents, being the difference between Christy and I, had done that with my brothers that were older than me. Because I got married the last, then I generationally fit in with Christy's family. And so that's the grandparents that my kids have always known. And they they wear, both of them do, the crown of glory for the grandkids that ultimately, in my opinion, were so equally loved. Three siblings, and I don't think there's one grandchild that could ever say, Grandpa never loved me. Grandma never loved me. Incredible. For me, at which time that may be evident sometime, man, there's some big shoes to fill. Um, and so that's being said is that this is speaking of a legacy moment, the crown for older men were to say that is worthy of both polishing and investing in. You're not written off just because you've sent your kids away. Those kids very likely are going to be delivering goods from God through the womb, and we need to be praying for them. And so it then says that the glory of children is their father. And so very often, sometimes, dad can have, if you would, a sense of not necessarily feeling it. And part of that is because the vocation of fathers very often takes them out of the home that the mother, I think, rightly so, can enjoy. It doesn't always happen that way, but I'm saying that that for the father, there is a there's a child that is to be able to esteem the position of a dad, and that's possible. and And if it's not, then we have a father in heaven, and he stands in that gap quite well. And so, this legacy of both granddads speaking very predominantly to the male right now, and the fatherhood. This is something that God says there's a legacy in that, something worthy of both being able to pray for and to ultimately um, be in practicing of. So I like that. Excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. That's verse 7. And so if you take those, it's really... It's not a word play, but it's it's showing you that that the prince is the one that possesses the excellent speech, and the fool is identified by lying lips. That's essentially what it is. The guy may try to use language that's excellence, but ultimately it will betray him, or he will betray the language he tries to use based on the foolishness of ultimately what's proven. He's going to say something that will not be in the if you would, lineup of truth, and it's going to be recognized. And so what are we finding ourselves, though, in these days, becoming, if you would, no longer any big deal? That's the lying lips, right? No one's necessarily afraid to lie anymore. Why? Because culture has said that's their truth. And I have shared this before, but I remember the first time in college, sitting in an education class, that the professor used this language and never forgot it. Well, that's 
what is true to you may not be true to someone else. And I remember listening to that, and I was going, I think he just did some garbledygook on me. He did some kind of twisted language thing on me. And he was a professor. He was very proud of his you know, educational comp accomplishments. And he was one that I sat, I sat before him. But I still did not understand why he would use that because it was basically saying, truth is variable, Richard. And by the way, I didn't fully appreciate him because he could never get my name right. I was either Rick, most frequently I was Dick. That was the, that was the nickname that my father's generation, everybody got a nickname. And I was named after my uncle Richard, who actually his entire life went by Dick. So when it was roll call time, Everybody raised their hand. I'm right at the top because of my A. And he goes, uh, Dick Ablett. Uh, that's rich. Thank you, Dick. <laughs> Only then to listen to his philosophy about truth. What is true for me may not be true for you. And he was saying, I validate that. There are variables. God would say, no. No, not really. Not in my book. And so this is basically taking a juxtaposition with regard to what the prince ought to be in possession of, and that's language skills that are excellent. And the fool, even though he may try it, he will not get away with it. The only way that a fool can ultimately get away with a language discrepancy is to confess the Lord Jesus as Lord of all, to repent of his foolishness and to ask for a regenerative nature in which he no longer has to be a animal kind of creature that shows stubbornness, a donkey. King James probably has it more accurate. And so excellent speech is not becoming to a fool. It doesn't work with them. They just don't, it doesn't work with them. And so in verse eight, a present is a precious stone in the eyes of its possessor. Wherever he turns, he prospers. So this is the individual that accepts as if God had put it into their hands a special, if you would, interpretation of the gift they are givers so i was going to the back room and all of a sudden a young little lad came up to me and opened his hand up and there was a special hermetically sealed lifesaver that was like emerald green and emerald is my birthstone and i love the emerald it's intriguing. It has some very interesting, rich history to it. It is considered valuable. It's going to be one of the stones and the foundation of what will be the new Jerusalem. And so as I looked down on him, I just said, that's precious. And I cherished it as if God had given it to me as if there couldn't have been a better messenger in my moment. I wasn't evaluating it such as, you know I like mint, what's this green thing? 
actually don't like mint. I like green. It was probably a mint, but mint always is white with like a little blue thing in the center of it. And so this was more intriguing because I think it represented kind of like an apple that had a little tart flavor to it. What I'm saying is, is that what we may receive, do we receive it as from the Lord? Do we savor it as one who was the presenter of it? What if I would have said, give me a Big Mac and we'll talk about this later. Be off with you. Well, that would be showing ingratitude. What I'm saying is that every single one of us has an opportunity to possess something. We can say, this is of the Lord and it's for you. And we can also be those who receive and say, that's from God and it's for me. And it's the attitude. It's how you see things. And you see things through the heart of the one who possessed it as a gift. Precious is the present. I just think that can make actually a lot of difference in somebody's life if we give them a credit and say, you're very thoughtful, you're very spiritual, I'll treasure this. Some, <laughs> some of my boxes, which I have not unpacked since Mexico, are treasuries of gifts that have been presented to me by students and, you know, different areas where in missions I've found things that God has given to me. And they're trying, some of my family, they're trying to say, okay, we need to build a little knickknack shelf for you, a little, you know, a curios cabinet. That's going, okay, if you think that can work. So I actually have somebody that's supposed to be giving me about three more feet of curious space because it associated with me is the fact that I cherish these little presents that I've discovered over the years. With that, when we look again at the essence of it, wherever he turns, he prospers. Really that saying that for the person that can both present a gift and be the recipient of a gift that they see as precious before God, then their outlook on everything else is to prosper. It's to be able to say, it looks pretty dark, foreboding. I think I gave John a call. I always give John a call. What I'm talking to him about, I don't remember. But this call I think was, hey John, is my house going to blow down? Are the trees going to fall? And so he, 70 mile per hour winds, it looks like a dangerous, deadly storm. What should I do? Listen. <laughs> he didn't say that. But he's always at my disposal to give me some type of encouragement. John, was that you or one of your friends? Yesterday, when it was dangerous, deadly dangerous. <laughs> okay, so he's not exactly right now playing with my illustration, but he's a very wise counselor. Check with him on surfing. He definitely knows surfing conditions. Okay. But at any rate, so I'm getting this alert, and it's a deadly 70 mile per hour. Branches are going to bust off. Trees are going to bend and hurt somebody like me. And I'm going, oh, Lord, I just don't feel good right now. And so what I am saying is that, trying to link this, I'll link it. Okay, I'll link it. 
is that that was a conflict of actually my spiritual nature. That was a conflict that was ruled by fear. And what I had to do was just whistle a happy tune. And I also got on my knees and I prayed. I said, Lord, I would appreciate it if I can appeal to anybody that's got big trees. And if they are vulnerable to big winds, then I'm going to take a spot that invites you to also take care of them. Did anybody lose power last night? Anybody? You did. Oh. <laughs> did it didn't relate to the storm though? Okay. <laughs> but I love the song that. Okay. Well. <laughs> but he knows how to handle that because he was a lineman for the county. I can hear Glenn Campbell singing over you right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that being said, is that. Um, the perspective that I have with regard to the one is to be that which also is able to carry my attitude into the other. I should be able to accept every circumstance, evaluate it on the one who's over it, that's God, and to be able to, if you would, whistle a happy tune. So when I finally went to bed realizing that staying up was not going to change per se the outcome, but that I'd already appealed to God and asking him for that, I remember that to me, there was just a silence that was comforting to me. And I know what howling wind sounds like and snapping branches, and I wasn't hearing any of that. And there were a couple times when I got up just to investigate, I'd actually flip on some of the lights that give me some at least spots that I would be able to review. Did that car get hit? Did the trailer that was parked exactly underneath one of those big whopping trees, did it get hit? And so when I was able to discern, I don't think anything got hit. Rain gutters. Did they crack and fall under the weight of water? Nothing. And so I was just going, Lord, you did it. You did it. And so we ought to live in the high expectation that the Lord can do great things when there's intense things that are happening and there's nothing wrong to carry that attitude, that frame of mind that says, if, for instance, that little green mint in my hand was received as if from God, then can't I surely be able to rest in the storm that God also allows? Isn't that a pretty awesome feeling when in the storm you took your charge of saying, I'm watching him rest in my storm? And I know that he can call that peace over it. And then to see, from my perspective, the twinkling lights of the city, I'm going, God's here right now. And I'm praying that wherever there is the fear that was generated in my soul, we just trust the Lord for peace. And we trust him for deliverance. It could have happened the other way. And I'm asking myself, would my countenance have been in the discipline of appreciating God, nevertheless, and trusting him for ultimately, how do I get out of this mess? Trusting God, nevertheless, but Lord, I now trust you for getting me out of this mess. And so verse 9, coming again to something that has linkage here, it all does. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. And so this is the classic junior high kind of thing. It always reminds me of that. We called them, or the kids called them in school, tattletales. 
um, in junior high, they were narcs, right? The narcs were the young, they were actually the, they were the, they probably became the young police force. That's exactly where they were. They knew truth. They knew who had stuff that they shouldn't have had. And yet that was their title. Some of them wore it very proudly and some of them retired from police work early, you know, because to have that title meant you'd be walking that hallway alone and kind of like Teddy Roosevelt, quiet and with a big stick. But I remember that um, with regard to that, that that was a hard season for young people to get through was the taunting and so forth, which very often just was fabrication. You know what it's like. And so the Lord gives an illustration really on just the importance of, of what happens when any time that there can be the, the disclosures. And so I'm going to take you there on what it means to us today. John 8, if you just zip over there, what we'll see is the transgression and the love of Jesus. And it was for the purpose of redemption for this person. So in John chapter 8, I'll scooch over there. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. So remember, this is parallel to where we're at. He who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats the matter separates friends. There's not one of us that have not been guilty of that. There's also not one of us that have not covered transgressions. It's both, right? No, just the one, Rich. Okay, so for me, though, it's both that I've covered and I've uncovered. So let me just put it there. Watch what Jesus does, though. Early in the morning, he came, Jesus, into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Okay, so one of the things that happens to be at times a misnomer, and I don't think, I honestly do not think anything of this with regard to um, an intentional misleading, but it does say that he's in the temple, and what you need to know is that probably he's in what would be called the women's court. The women's court actually had a dynamic place uh, in the Judaic design of the temple. It was a place where only the women could go. And it was also a place that very likely within that area, a common zone for the women, the men wouldn't be there. It was a place also where the currency for the temple was kept and trumpets that could be placed there. And the passing by, it was within certain proximity to the women's court. So in old Eastern culture, and in particular in Judaism, there was sectors. And the men had the greater liberty with how far they could go. Gentiles had no liberty up to a point. It would be death. Women, though, were invited to be inside. But this is also something that has been discovered. It was extraordinary tile in the flooring that very likely was inlaid within the temple. It's not necessarily the dirt floor that very often we associate with like stagecoaches and barns. It was rather extravagant and extraordinary. It doesn't mean that dust doesn't get in there. Of course it was traveled, but I'm wanting you to see that 
by archaeology and some discovery, this was inlaid tile. Very likely it could have been extraordinary mosaic. It was a lovely place. So if you're outside thinking that the stagecoach and barn animals are trampling over it, you have to change your mind and think of something that is somewhat palatial, very awe-inspiring. This is where Jesus is meeting ultimately this woman for what has happened to her. And so as he comes into the temple, all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So in this area, right now, he's teaching. It's at this point, precisely, that the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. There isn't anything to be denied there. That's what they're saying happened. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. You can see that right now it's a legal setup. It's a legal setup for a moral failure. But these guys are those who are lawmen. The law that they want to keep is the law which imposes upon her a death sentence. And so this is what they say. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? In essence, they're saying this is what the law says. Give us your opinion on this. They weren't really interested in his, in his opinion. They were only interested to see if he would contradict the law of Moses. This is what he does. It says, This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Again, this ground, it could be argued... I tend, to, I tend to look at this in, in a manner which I think is correct. It was an extraordinary part of this place where this assembly is taking place right now. And as this is happening right now, he bends down, stooping, it says. And this stooping is also extraordinary imagery right now. It's as if he's kneeling both as God and Lord and a scholar in Judaic um, history. And he's now in the position of taking her position. She's cast down on the floor and he stoops on the very floor that she's cast down on while those who are casting asper, obviously aspersions and denials of her sanctity to live and the reasonability that she was set up and in the situation also that the other person guilty of it is not there. It looks completely as though it were an entrapment and he sees it all. As she's cast down, he gets down. As he gets down, he pens a thought or two and this is what is being written. Jesus stooped down, rode on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. The accusation that has come to him, which he did hear, he does not give them the benefit of their doubt. He just 
ignores them divinely and he begins to etch with his finger. And when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and he rode on the ground. Here's what I also want to share with you. It reminds me of what is clearly identified in the encounter that Moses had with God. The Ten Commandments were written on tablets of stone. Don't know how pretty they were, irrelevant, but it says with the finger of God they were recorded. And God, the author of those Ten Commandments, is writing now stooping with his finger, very likely on a beautiful stone, a stone that could have indeed indicted her as what the Ten Commandments would certainly do. They were intended to show the perfection of God and the standard of righteousness that he has to both be a model in what you have to do to come into his presence and to worship him and what you have to do in order to be a good neighbor and to be significant in living your life. And what we know is that the law of perfect and what it requires of us is impossible to satisfy. For being guilty in one fault, you were guilty of all of them. You've broken it. And I just love the imagery right now. In her place of deepest torment, of mockery, the very thing that would have been a publishing point of her sin, he gets down with her pens what I believe is on this tile and very likely a tile that had not been kept up by those in charge of the temple. Why? Because they got used to dirt. They got used to the stuff that God would have said, I don't want you to get used to that. Keep it up. Clean it off. Polish it more. It's just perhaps a conjecture, but I do believe there's a lot of merit to this. And so as he's down there and he's penning with his finger, it says that in this stooping, those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus has raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me, shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He turned her tragedy into a perfect illustration of mercy and grace and love. There was something that extraordinarily would have taken over her heart than the break that she would have had in it just prior to this. The mind that would be assaulted with what everybody would seemingly know and he exempts her from the charge of adultery, which lawfully would have rendered death. And he does so by being with her. And then notice, in what she knew had happened, she rises first. He comes up following her, 
to look at her, not to judge upon her. It's a beautiful statement, really, of the church. It's a beautiful statement that when the church gets levied for being a sinful woman, Jesus says, you know what? I've written that law in two tablets that to this day have not changed or altered by one degree. But I've also written on that stone in the temple that got dirty by those who did not care about my heart to love those who came to worship me, desired to have fellowship with me. That floor should have been swept clean. Then you know what we would have seen? That same finger that etched those commandments on the Ten Commandments would have been probably etched in the stone there on the floor. Maybe God was saying to them, my charge against you will blow away. Like I'm asking you, by your conscience, to let this go. And it all just goes. Every charge that he wrote to those guys that had thrown her down, it goes with one breath. It's blown off the tile. The very thing that they wanted as an indictment to what seemingly she had been set up to have witnessed that could not be challenged and needed to be judged, he exempts her of. And then he lets them go, and very likely those sandals trudged on that penmanship that he made that could have indicted every single one of them for the death sentence that they wanted on her. Just, I think, an extraordinary picture of God who used the same finger back for Moses. He does it for a woman. And in essence, he allows that dust to also be blown away or trampled under his foot that even those guys have a chance to keep their secret. But what he says, with what I've protected you in, change. It's not just her, it's you guys. It's not just you guys, it is her. But if you follow me, then you're going to walk in the light. And you're going to love as I love. I just like that. I think it's pretty extraordinary. I think it's very important to look at those things. If not, then we've just all become junior hires again. You know, walk in the hallway, thinking we got something on someone. I still remember to this day, I was just thinking about this. I was on a bus. And I'd found out something about one of the bullies Back in my day, we had bullies, and they were loud. Bullies were good. They made you into men. And some of these guys were just tough guys. So I'm sitting on the bus. I think somebody's sitting next to me. Oh, he was, because I was talking to him. And I was talking about this bully. Unfortunately, I didn't have eyes enough to see that this bully was right behind me. And everything I was saying was about him. I was mocking him. All of a sudden, these big hands reached around me, they grabbed a hold of my neck, and I was lifted up by my neck. That's called a junior high lynching. <laughs> I started seeing stars, because he was pinching my neck. That's a hanging, you know? And, and he basically twisted my head around. My body had to follow, or I would have been like a chicken. And he looked me in the eye and said, what are you saying, punk? Nothing. Yeah, you did. 
you said everything and I'm going to kill you. And I believed that he would. And in that moment, I just said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Yes, you did. Okay, I did mean it, but I'm sorry that I said it. Is that the right answer? And then he did one of these, because we do that to bullies. So you, bullies can threaten you with their language, but they always have to punctuate it with a slug. So he took his fist and went right on my head. So I got driven down into the seat. Then he did a karate chop across this part of me, which does another kind of paralysis thing to your body. And other than that, I was publicly humiliated on the school bus. And then to top it all off, somebody had pepper spray and launched that one. I lived during the days in which we needed God. <laughs> okay, so that was a living illustration of what not to do with your mouth when you feel that that publication is really important to get out. I learned to be really careful. So I hope that only entertains you. I don't know if there's anything that compares to that right now. So with that being said is that the bottom line is that he who covers a transgression seeks love. And so we've all done well at covering transgressions, and we've also done not so well in exposing transgressions. It's happened to us. It's happened to others. you know. But I think that God really does have the heart of being able to translate the transgression into this redemptive work in which once there was a charge forged against me and God broke through to liberate me. And it's a wonderful feeling to be liberated from guilt. It's a wonderful feeling when all of a sudden that big bully is satisfied at least in a little humility. And it's interesting. I will tell you just in closing, that big bully who was, I was afraid of, he was like, he was one of those, he was about six foot tall, six foot tall. And he had, he had in his life a Jesus moment and he actually got regenerated. He was a marvelous Christian musician that was contrary completely to the person that threatened me back on that bus. And I've never forgotten him. He began to write music, play in Christian bands, had an awesome testimony, but he was the same guy that 14, 15 years earlier, I hated. And he hated me. And then all of a sudden, we're meeting up as Christian brothers and we're praying together. That's the difference of what love can do. Transition you from the one that marks transgression to the one who says, it's been inscribed and it's been blown away. Whew. It's trampled under my foot, God. You're liberated. Go and sin no more. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. And so this simply speaks about correction. And it says wise men aren't exempt from correction. But how we take it marks us as the men that God wants us to be able to exemplify. There are different kinds of rebukers. I think that for me, I learned so much from hard, hard, hard coaches that would take 
their offense on the team out on those who were not offenders, we were all put into this disciplinarian um, shaping. And I appreciated the coaches that used to rebuke me. Even in my innocence, I learned from them to be able to accept authority over me and become a part of the team that I wanted to see conform to the standard of the coach, not for us to take any less of a standard. I wanted actually to be a part of a team that could take that rebuke and to be able to turn it into a result that on game day we won because we submitted to it. The rebuking is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool, meaning that they're not going to respond if their desire isn't to respond. What one would suggest is that with a hundred, certainly that fool's going to get the message, but it's not true until their heart comes into an agreement that submission is necessary and prudent and effectual to changing either the outcome that certainly will happen, they're just going to continue. They're going to continue on in the way that pride and arrogance ultimately gets reflected in something that's just ahead. And then in verse 11, that ties into this, an evil man seeks only rebellion, and that's ultimately what happens to one that is a fool who plays out their life. Even after a hundred blows, they eventually become so in their way that they will be known as an evil man because they perfected rebellion. So even when we see that, God has an opportunity to change it. We just have to ask ourselves, do we have a willing heart to give God, again, I've used it before, the benefit of our doubt? Can he really change that person? And some of the most fabulous stories of evangelists and pastors and teachers, they were guys that we would have seen early on in their life and they were abject failures and objects of rebellion. Abject failures and objects of rebellion. And God got a hold of them in a moment in which they were broken and they confessed or they had friends that prayed over them. And literally, I'd say they changed the world that at one point in time was theirs to ruin. But God says, from those ruins, I will build myself a house of worship. And you can read about those guys. They're only a very short list. It was Chuck Smith's harvest, but if you read about all those guys, most of them lost in sin, transgression, hopeless, desperately wicked. And God turned them on to the light, and they followed him. And so now those guys are just 72, 73, 75, some of them clocking at eight. They're the 60s generation. May we be able to see a revival in these latter days I love the, the things that we're learning in the college. There's a, there's a wonderful class on worshiping the Lord face down. There's a wonderful class of being taught the attributes of David, being raised up to be king over Israel. There's a wonderful class that's being taught on the blessed hope. 
And these classes are deeply inspiring. We have a class that we're moving through spiritual disciplines with regard to the importance of prayer and the functionality with regard to how does the Bible work? How does sitting before the Word of God work in our lives? How is it that we can actually be changed even in a world that is unchanging and moving in a direction of deeper corruption? We've got to keep our hearts here and we've got to keep our place here and we have to say, the Lord's coming. He's drawing near. So we want to see a change happens. We, we want the harvest to, to be manifested. I'm really proud of what this church is doing, really proud of our young student body. We have everything to be super, super excited about. Proud of the families. We've got great families here. Great, great, great families. Great minstrels. It's a great work that's going on.